starting a business isn't the end all be all. Um, it takes some soul searching, but people that are meant to do it always find their way into doing it. This is the Future Self Estate Planning Podcast, your place for financial and estate planning tips and so much more to make your future self your biggest fan. He's your host, Robert Ingalls. Hello, Future Self listeners. This is Robert Ingalls. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Future Self Podcast, your resource for knowledge, insight, and inspiration from some of the most accomplished minds. Each episode is intended to provide you with actionable advice that you can implement in your life today to get from where you are to where you want to be. And in that vein, I'm going to start every show with a productivity hack, a tactic that you can implement immediately to multiply your productivity. And today's hack sounds like a simple one, but I'll tell you, you may encounter some inner turmoil when trying to implement it. Turn off the notifications on your phone. It's hard to get in the zone to find that flow state when you're working, when you're constantly being interrupted by Facebook notifications, retweets, email newsletters. I know from personal experience that giving up those micro hits of dopamine can be a very large challenge. Our brains love notifications. They heighten our self-worth. But trust me, give this a try. Just try it for a week and see what happens. And I'll even throw a how-to video into the show notes and blog post on how to do that on an Android and on iOS. But give that hack a try. Come back here. Let me know how it worked for you because it has really changed the way I, I get work done. On to today's guest. If you're looking to be inspired to move, to face your fears, and start making decisions today that will have lasting impact on your future self, there is no better guest. A man that never stops moving always reaching for the next rung on the ladder. His list of accomplishments make you wonder if he gets the same 24 hours in each day as everyone else. From high school where he was valedictorian and a nationally ranked tennis star, to college where he was a university fellow scholar at Garner Webb University. Then he moved on to a corporate job with Ernst & Young, started a couple of businesses, went to law school where he was student body president and associate editor of Law Review, has been admitted to the state bars of North Carolina and Florida, as well as the United States District Court of North Carolina. He's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, the ABA Journal, and the National Jurist, a man that's never impressed with yesterday's accomplishments, always looking for the next angle, a man who understood his future self, where he wanted to be, and made the tough decisions every day to get there. It's my pleasure to welcome today's guest, the man that makes uncommon decisions look like common sense, Nathan Workman. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be in Studio 1811. <laughs> All right, now fill in the gaps for us. Tell us a little bit about you and what you're up to right now. Right now, my focus is being the managing attorney of Radius Law Group, and through that role, I predominantly help individuals obtain VA benefits, uh, wartime veterans, as well as surviving spouses and wartime veterans. I also have a few other business ventures I've been working on. Uh, one is a software application for caregivers to assist them in taking care of uh, elderly individuals that they're assisting. And the second is a software application that is uh, focused on self-serve uh, legal matters. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think the, the one for elderly is great. That's an exploding industry right now. Absolutely. That's they, a good place they to They estimate be. that about 80 million individuals right now are providing care for an elderly individual. Right on. So you're just married, right? Just married, indeed. Second see, time. See you playing with that <laughs> ring right now. How's it feel? Well, it, um, it 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 doesn't burn like I thought it would. <laughs> but uh, no, she's she's a great girl. Right on. So, have you taken a honeymoon yet? We have not. The Zika virus ended up changing our plans considerably. So you had honeymoon <laughs> plans, and then you put them off. Honeymoon plans for Brazil. For which, Brazil. Yeah, that, that's now ground zero for for Zika. So that that's completely out of the question. Uh, she's a 
uh, nurse practitioner. And of course, she's been following all the, the Zika developments sure. very, very intently. So did you make any plans yet? We, we just rescheduled and rebooked everything for the end of August. And we're going to be heading up to a very Zika-free territory, which is the Pocono Mountains. Right on. All right. So how is, uh, how's being married? Has it changed your routine at all? Not at all. I've, uh, as I mentioned, this is the second round through for me. So <laughs> get it right the second time. <laughs> uh, we've, we've been dating for about five years. So I'm, I'm now certain she's the one. Right on. Congratulations, man. So do you have a morning routine? Is there a routine you go through every morning to get your day started? Absolutely. I'm, I'm not a morning person. I'm an evening person. And I like to work late into the night. However, working late in the night is only conducive if you are a single person who's very driven to accomplish something in your life. Otherwise, unfortunately, with the advent of the Internet, you can waste time so easily. And just because you're working a lot of hours doesn't mean you're accomplishing a lot. No, absolutely. So what I like to do is force myself to get up early. And not being a morning person, that hour between 4 and 5 is usually when I'll watch a little bit of television and start to wake up a little bit, maybe read some news. Yeah, I absolutely uh, agree. That's uh, That was my experience as well. I was always a night person, you know, going to bed 12 or 1. Then I met my wife. She's a nurse, and she gets up, you know, every day around 5, and that kind of started getting me up at the same time. And now that uh, I've completely embraced that lifestyle over the, you know, number of years, but I find that, that those couple hours before 8 that I'm up and working is my most productive time. I can sit there, I can be with my thoughts, and the phone's not ringing, and that really, it's really changed my life and changed my productivity. Absolutely. I, also, I like to use that time for meditation and focusing on what specifically I want to accomplish in that given day. And even looking back and uh, taking a look at the previous day, previous week, seeing if I'm getting closer to the overall goals that I have. And, and again, one of the problems that I think a lot of people run into, particularly entrepreneurs, is that you can spend day after day after day working and not really look back and reflect on what you've accomplished. And it can be pretty isolating. It can be pretty lonely to be an entrepreneur. Sure. And one of the things that uh, you know does help to motivate me, at least, is to go back through my notes and say, okay, well, if I felt like yesterday was complete failure, well, heck, you know, I got all this accomplished in the last week. I can look back at my notes. And it's one reason I think it's so important for anybody that's starting a business to have a diary. Keep keep a track of what you're doing. Keep track of the wins because the wins are often few and far between, especially early on in the business. Sometimes it's now, nice to track those. So you you write it all down. Do you have any affirmations that you kind of come back to as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And the affirmations are usually clients, uh, people that you've you've done a good job for. It's it's nice to be recognized for for doing a good job for people, and those are sometimes the ones that keep you going when you have. Uh, clients that you save that are really nasty to you <laughs> sure, and they don't realize how grateful they should be. Um, you know, the ones that are grateful and, uh, and do care kind of keep you motivated and keep you wanting to do more. All right, let's go back to that meditation for one second, because I, I just found meditation probably nine months ago and it has been a huge benefit in my life. And that's one of the things I do first thing in the morning when I wake up, uh, kind of right as soon as I wake up, I, I put in my headphones and I listen to my app app and I use Headspace. Do you use an app to meditate or... I used to, and I have at different times in my life. Uh, my sister and I actually used to do a guided meditation together, and it's kind of nice in, in some sense. I think Headspace is one of the applications where you can do a group uh, session, which which is kind of nice if you're wanting to do it with uh, an accountability partner, if you will, for meditation. Yeah, and I tried to do it on my own a little, and, and I have not succeeded yet. It's like working out. You have to have a trainer. You have yeah. to have someone that you're helping. So the, the nice thing about Headspace is that you do have uh, some some peer uh, interaction that you can have that makes it a little bit better. But 
And that kind of intersects with what you had just said for me. It's people don't often look back at their successes. And that's one of the things meditation has done for me. It's given me that opportunity to be at peace and not be thinking about what's going forward and reflect upon what I've done, um, what my goals are and how far I've come with them. With meditation, I've found what works best for me is to think about nothing, to consciously think about nothing. And it's tough to do. Yeah. There's, there's so many stimuluses in, in the world and, and so many things that are trying to grab your attention that it's hard to just, just to be still and think. And focusing on black or focusing on white or focusing on nothing, sure. just trying to create a collar in your head or, or something in your head and just focus on it and intently and to where anytime you have a thought that comes in that tries to break you away from that concentration you get rid of it that clarity of thought is a important skill to learn as it is for someone who's learning to play guitar to have calluses on their fingers sure yeah they else. take a while yeah absolutely. from personal experience <laughs> but uh, when you're in an abject crisis and you have to think and you're not used to that and you haven't developed those skills, uh, it can be very hard to come to the right decision. Sure. But if you're used to that meditation, the, the nice thing about it is that you can get yourself in that meditative state very quickly if you're if you're practiced at it. Right. I think it's like everything else. I mean, the more you do it, the more focused practice you do, the better you're going to be at it when you need it. Absolutely. Um, so when we talk about planning out your days, do you actually write down what you're going to be doing each day, each month, things like that? I've used software applications for that over the years and uh, when I was in high school, I used the the Franklin Covey planners. You know, they've 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 soaked me for a lot of money over the years. But um, I think what works best for me is to have a legal pad and keep it real simple. Sure. Put a list of one through ten, and those are the things you're going to get done that day. I always read that Sarah Lee did that. Um, there, she she just kept it real simple. Because uh, if you're trying to accomplish anything more than 10 things on your task list, you don't have 10 things on your task sure. list. Sure. You just don't. I mean, there, there's, A, no way to, to get that done. And then, two, people either do one of two things with a task list. They either make the projects too big, so they're like, I'm going to clean the house. Yeah, well, you, clean the house isn't one thing. I sure. Mean, there's multiple steps to cleaning a house if you're going to clean the house the way. to clean the blinds. Yeah. If you're going to clean the house the way my mother always made me clean the house, it's not a one-step process. And <laughs> That's a weekend event. Yeah. So my, my father always broke it out like this. You have to know when a process is a project and when a process is an event. And they're two different. They're very, very, very different things. A project is different than an event. And Break that down for us. Project. All right. <laughs> so an event is something like a birthday, right? It's it's something that comes. It has its time, and then it ends. Within that, you might have a number of things that you need to get done within it, right? You might have a product of, hey, I need to get a wedding cake, right? Which may be something that is just as simple as going into Baskin-Robbins and getting it done, or it might be something as complicated as going into the store and having to plan out what type of cake you're going to make. Sure. The problem within project planning is, what do you plan out? Because if you don't track it, you can't measure it. You don't know where you're at in the status of doing it, and that's how most people live their lives. They're just constantly reacting to things around them. So, oh, my God, when there's a birthday or, oh, my God, when there's a client that has to be responded to or anything else, I'm just scrambling to figure this out. Project planners don't do that. What project planners do is they take a look at an event and say, or to benchmarks are another way to call it, you know, a benchmark of I need to hit this goal or I need to accomplish this, this uh, overall task that I've been assigned to accomplish. And then I break that up into one overall project that has something that's measurable that I can accomplish. That cake is something that's measurable. You know when you have a cake. Right. You know when you have uh, uh, people invited to something. I mean, it's 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 some type of tangible result that you can get from it. 
Once you've identified what that can be, now you can break that down and see, is that a process itself? Is that process multiple projects? Is it just one thing? Can I just scratch that off really quickly? And, and what really effective people do over time is they see what can be accomplished very quickly that gets them towards the overall goal of the benchmark that they want to hit. And the trick is that if it's less, you know, Tony Robbins always uses this, and I think it's a brilliant advice. If you can get something knocked out in five minutes or less, it doesn't need to go on a task list. Just do it. Right. But people delay and procrastination is just the death of anyone. It, it creates so much anxiety. It creates, and nothing ever gets better. Yeah. And there's right. another quote uh, around that similar kind of idea that successful people touch things once. Absolutely. You know, if it's something that can be done, it needs to be done now, and you don't put it down for later. You don't pick it up, look at it. If it's a bill, you pick up that bill, you see it, you pay it. You don't put it down and put it in the stack for later. And I'm terribly guilty of that because I'm a piler, not a filer. But right. the, the problem with being a piler is that you touch things more than once. It's like everything else. You know, you got to practice it and focus on it and work on it. It'll get better, right? Absolutely. <laughs> My wife has uh, seen to it that I've got uh, a lot better at being a filer than a piler. Yeah, your, your office is impeccably clean, I have to admit. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So you've clearly embraced the hustle your entire life. Was there one moment you can think back to where it all kind of clicked and you're like, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I'm not sure who said it, but there's a quote that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. Find a better room. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, that, that was definitely the case for, for me. So by the time I get to college, again, I'm not really struggling, not really applying myself. And I had a teacher that was very good, uh, Philip Swicegood. And the thing that he did that was so good was at the beginning of every class, he would allow you to take an exam to pass out of the entire class. I had one class like that as well. And if you and if you get the score, and everybody wants to take the test because, heck, if I get a 90 or I get a 100, I don't have to show up at class for the rest of the class. I took the test. So I took a 50-question multiple-choice test on personal finance, and I had the highest score in the class at three correct answers. Wow. That's a hard test. It I'm was. assuming you took the class. I took the class. I took the class. <laughs> And, and the, po- the point of that exercise, of course, is just to show you how little you, th- you right. know. You don't know. You yeah. think you know. You think you think you know, but you don't know. Yeah. He, he was merciless with me because uh, I would, you know, I could baffle people with BS pretty well. I was so used to doing it in high school and I was so used to doing it in early parts of my life that I didn't really have to, to struggle much. But he, if, if I was making something up or didn't read <laughs> and he caught me, he would wear me out. He, he'd let me dig my hole. And then let me fall into it, and sure. he would just pile on the dirt. And uh, it that's was, how you learn. It was good for me. It was very good for me. But even then, through college, I mean, it wasn't much of a struggle to you know maintain a three point five GPA or whatever. It just wasn't wasn't that hard. Um, going to law school again, difficulty level steps up a little bit. Um, a little, little bit harder to be at the top of your class, but by far the, the biggest challenge was the North Carolina bar exam. Absolutely, hands down. That was that was the tough. Uh, Florida bar exam is a cakewalk comparatively in North Carolina bar, I was, I'd lost 10 pounds in two days and I was completely exhausted by the end of it. Yeah. And I could have just well checked myself in the hospital and get a bag of IV. <laughs> and I'll take this moment to give a shout out to Joshua Lee, the Ingalls law intern who just finished the North Carolina oh, bar exam yesterday. Congratulations. Congrats, buddy. We might need to take him out for a drink. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So through all this, you've been an entrepreneur, you've bought businesses, you've sold businesses. Was there ever a moment where you were really feeling the heat and felt like throwing in the towel and going back to that nine to five grind? Never. Never. And <laughs> the reason for that is because I got to see my father. He, he worked at Union Carbide for 35 years and he was always at some type of risk of someone else determining his fate. I remember very clearly one time where 
he didn't know if he was going to be part of one round of layoffs. And I saw him just furiously working all the time. He would come back home late, 7, 8 o'clock at night, and then he would start another business that he was working with a coworker that they ended up selling. And he was just constantly working. And you know, I was looking back, I think I held some animosity against him as a kid, thinking, well, why isn't he spending more time with us? But he couldn't. He was trying to provide for us. Sure. There was no way that he could do that. And the, the the focus there was that he had to do all that because he didn't have the stability at work. Even though he worked for the same company for 35 years, and my grandfather worked for the same company for over 50 years, um, he, he was a manager of a farm store. And they he said that they couldn't throw him out because his name was on the yardsticks that they gave out. And everybody in town knew he was the manager, so they could never get rid of him. <laughs> but uh, he, my father drilled in my head that I would never have that kind of job stability. And I don't know anyone that does. I don't yeah. know anyone my age that's been at the same company for more than five years, much less 35. Yeah, you don't see that as much. That's a relic. So the only the only way I had any control over my fate was to run my own businesses. And I've had some type of business on the side ever since I was 16. What would you tell someone who's in that moment where they're, they have a job, they're working for someone, but they're not fulfilled? And they kind of want to step out, but they've got a, they're in a position where they've got that you know relative job security. They've got that paycheck, but they're not happy. What advice do you give that person? Well, the harder it gets harder, the longer you wait. It really does because you get the, the golden handcuffs as I like to call them. It's, it's complacency to some degree. But the second is that if you're making money, it's, it's hard to leave. It's like uh, you know, going back to the Bible and then the rich young ruler, you know, Jesus giving the, <laughs> some of the most insightful advice in the Bible, which it's easier for a, uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter heaven because they have to give up so much. Right. It's the same thing. If you're getting a, a steady paycheck and you're getting benefits and you've got, got a nine to five and you don't have to worry about things when you go home. Forget being an entrepreneur. I haven't had a vacation over seven days in 10 years. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't have any benefits unless I order them for myself and, and work with a, a HR coordinator or work with some you know, third-party vendor in order to get health care for myself or a retirement plan for myself. I'm responsible for all of it. And you know, if, if people are doing work within a, uh, an organization and they, they don't feel like they're achieving what they need to achieve in life, then you know, there are other ways to be successful in life. You can volunteer at organizations and feel more committed and, or feel, be more fulfilled in what you're doing. You don't have to start a business. I mean, starting a business isn't the end-all, be-all. Um, it takes some soul-searching. But for people, I, I find that being an entrepreneur is somewhat like being an attorney. People that are meant to do it always find their way into doing it. Sure. You can't talk them out of it. It's right. the same for being an entrepreneur. Because, I, mean, I mean, everyone tried to talk both of us, I'm sure, out of going to law school. Oh, with, Don't with do a, it. Without question, they were right. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, you know, if, if you're if you're going to end up there, you're going to end up there, if that's in your life path. Yeah. I think there's a lot of social pressure that people encounter as well. I've talked to a lot of successful people, and many of them recount negative stories of reactions from friends and family members um, when they decided to embrace less than conventional career paths. They decided to you know, quit this six-figure job because they just weren't finding fulfillment. They looked at their life, and they said, it's almost half over. you know, And they didn't want to look back uh, in another 30 or 40 years and see you know, and look at the same thing that they were looking at that day. And there's so much social pressure when you make that decision to hop out and, and do something different. And especially if you're married and you have children to provide for, and now you're just kind of just hopping out and starting over almost. Um, and society, um, friends, family, and things like that sometimes aren't always going to be the most supportive in those moments. Well, when I work with clients, uh, 
the first thing that I will do when they come to me with a business idea or something that they want to run. And I've, I have an example of this very recently. I had a friend of mine that uh, had contacted me about wanting to enter into a franchise. I did everything I could possibly do to talk him out of it. So it wasn't right for them? Partially. Uh, one is that anytime that someone is coming to me for advice, I assume that they're coming to me because they actually want to hear what I have to say. Sure. Number one. Number two is that... Uh, not to just get a yes. Yeah, not to just get a yes. And number two is that sometimes I like for people to prove to me what they really believe by their actions and by their statements, as opposed to just hearing something and thinking, well, this sounds good. Surely this is what I should do. And then they're looking for affirmation from everybody to convince themselves. Sure. I want somebody that's convinced themselves before they come to me. He was not convinced himself that this was a good idea. People had told him certain things and he was excited about it. And he was basically looking for a chorus of yeses to tell him that this was what it needed to be. So he felt comfortable moving forward with it. And I didn't give it to him. Right. Validate my idea. This is a terrible idea. This franchises fail all the time. They're not guaranteed successes. And this one, least of all, this is a terrible type of field. Sure. Paid the $160,000 franchise fee, had me set up all the legal paperwork for the franchise. And he contacted me last week about the franchise not living up to the expectations that they had told him in the promotions. And he wants to get out of the agreement. Hmm. It's rough. Now, the thing is, I was the only advisor that he talked to that told him not to do it. And that's what I tell most people to start a business. If if you're asking advice about how to start a business, that's a lot different than asking whether you should start a business. If you're asking whether you should start a business, the answer is you shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, generally, if you're just saying, I want to start a business, but you're not really sure where you're headed, maybe take a second. Kind of Correct. think about what, what it is that you want to do. What could you see yourself? Because if your entire reasoning for doing it is money, that's going to get old real quick. Oh, it, it, it can't be for money. That, that's, that's the worst reason to go into business because most businesses don't succeed. You know, it's it's like going into law school for money. Most attorneys don't make as much as you might think. Right. <laughs> so it's that yeah. it's that eighty twenty rule it, coming it's, out. It's that eighty twenty rule, absolutely amplified. So yeah, the, what's what's a good reason to go into business? Well, it's not to you know feed the feed the poor and and create jobs for everybody else either. That's a good way to get yourself broke as, as well. Uh, the reason to go into business is because you have a service that you feel like you can do a little bit better than everybody else for you know a fair price. Or that you've got a process or you've worked out some way that you can do something a little bit faster, a little bit better, a little bit cheaper than the next guy can, and you're passionate about doing it. Well, sure. Great. Now, now you've got something that's marketable. You've got a marketable skill. You've got a marketable product that you can sell. If you're in it for any other reason, it will fail. If you're in it to impress people, if you're in it to live up to something, it, it will fail. If you're in it for money, it will fail. So what do you tell someone? They show up. They got, they're passionate about something. Seems like a viable idea, and, but they're still kind of on the fence. That's usually the person that will be successful. What do you tell them in that moment if they're like kind of heeing and hawing, not sure whether to take that jump? I, I can always, and again, if once you've read several thousand business plans and been involved with people, you can kind of tell who who's the ideal person to take over a business. And, and usually the, the person who's ideal to take over a business is someone who understands the potential, understands the opportunity. However, they understand that there's a problem. Because if there's if there's a business plan with no problems, you're delusional. Every business has risk. Every business has risk, which is why I respect entrepreneurs so much. Because there are people that have looked into the face of, of the dragon and, and emerged. You know, <laughs> every business has risks, so they're the ones that understand the risk and still feel like they are willing to move forward with it because they believe the benefits are enough to, to do so. You know, there's there's enough potential gain there, but at the same time, they're not. 
blind to it. If they if they understand it, you should have some trepidation starting a business. If you don't, you're crazy. Right. You know that there's a risk of failure. Yeah. So th- those are the ones that, and when they have a good idea, then the role of a counselor uh, or attorney or whoever is to try to help them understand how to mitigate those risks. Right. Well, and at the end of the day, you also need to be able to go in accepting that you're going to fail. And if you do fail, you're not a failure. Absolutely. Um, and that's a lesson I learned the hard way. You know, I started a number of businesses um, over the course of my life, and a number of them failed. But what I learned looking back is that even when they failed, that I had, I, I made contacts. I, I learned a lot about what does and doesn't work, and I had contacts going into the next venture. And I think that's one of the things I see when I meet with business owners that really um, there's a line drawn in the middle of the ones that are going to go forward and be successful because they fail. When they do look back at that failure, all they see is the lessons they learn from it and they don't take it personally. Sure. Hey, every every person, whether you have a successful business or not, you're still going to have failures. Yeah. Dust yourself off. Absolutely. I mean, not, not everything that McDonald's has ever put out sold like hotcakes. <laughs> yeah, they they had Literally. pizza once. I, I remember when they had pizza. It was terrible. <laughs> All right. Uh, now you provide comprehensive business and financial counseling. Have you discovered any important areas that people tend to overlook? Well, by far the most common one is that small business owners will come in and look at the business in the absolute wrong way to look at a business, which is looking at it as an investor. Okay. So if you're starting a business, what's the first thing that an investor is going to look at when he looks to invest in your business? If you're making any money. Number one, are you making any money? Number two, how am I going to get my money out? They Everyone goes in with an exit plan in mind at the onset, and very few small business owners do. So if they're working on their small uh, their business plan, I, I get hundreds and hundreds of business plans a year to review for, for clients or people that value my advice for whatever reason and want me to take a look at it. Sure. I can't tell you how rarely... I'll see an exit plan in those business plans. And every business plan should have an exit plan because maybe one day you want to retire. Yeah, it's less owning a business, more owning a job. Exactly. And it's it's the old income versus wealth uh, dynamic for a business. Is this business pr- producing income or is it producing actual wealth? Right, because on one hand, I mean, what happens? You step away from that business and there goes the income. Correct. And you know, a lot of the, the a lot of the ideas that we get, and I'll I'll be upfront with clients about it. I'll say, well, this is a great income generator here, but there is nothing here that you can sell. You know, for instance, someone wants to start a, a Mary Kay franchise. Fantastic. Uh, if you're just out there hustling and you're dealing with your friends, then great. It might provide you a lot of additional income, but it's not going to be something you can sell. Right. You know, no one's going to. It's buy dependent this on you. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it, and it's different as opposed to somebody that might be starting an insurance agency that, hey, there's an actual book of business there that's building you some wealth that you can transfer if you manage it properly. Sure. So in, in that vein, this is a question I hear frequently is when I start my business, should I give it more of a generic name or, you know, is it bad to name it after myself? Well, I've never gone through a business transaction where someone didn't change the name immediately after they bought it. <laughs> now, and I'll t- and I'll say that you know, if if it were so important to keep the name, then what's Wells Fargo doing? Yes, yeah, they have sure. one of the strongest bank names in existence with Wachovia. The customer service that recognition for it was exceptional. Uh, you know, when they did the first union merger, it, I, I knew off the bat which name they were going to get rid of. I hated First Union. Wachovia was a very strong name. But uh, especially in this area, but Wells Fargo comes in at, we bought it, we're taking it over. It's us. It's, it's Wells Fargo now. Uh, I had a business sale that I worked on last year that uh, was an extremely well-known regional brand, and it absolutely baffled my mind that they would change that business name. But uh, 
they they did immediately upon purchase. Right. So yeah, I, I don't think it's as big of a deal. I mean, to me, the the name, the business card, uh, those types of things that people tend to focus on aren't really what's important. Uh, the customers just want to know, can you do the job? Sure. So for someone who hasn't considered any type of um, exit strategy or succession planning, what's the first step? Well, the first step is to make sure that it's incorporated as part of the overall business plan. Again, it's just something that has to be added in. It doesn't have to be anything terribly complicated, but it just has to be something that's considered. You know, if you're if I'm going to start a business that let's just say I'm starting a restaurant, which you know, as as you and I joke about all the time, it's the worst business that you can conceivably start. Anybody listening, don't start a restaurant. It's <laughs> I can I can give you literally hundreds of names of people that are bankrupt because they tried to start a restaurant. It's it's not worth it. Produce the perfect taco at home, enjoy it, make it for your friends and loved ones. <laughs> Do not try to start a food truck. Yeah, and speaking from nine years of experience inside a service industry, um, it's it's a lot of work, and the rewards are not as high as they might look. Absolutely, they they say that uh, what is it one one in ten businesses uh, succeed after the first five years. For restaurants, it's about one in a hundred <laughs> in my experience. Uh, most are grossly underfunded, and it's a hard business to get started. But yeah. getting back to your question, you know, what's what's the right time, and what what's the uh, what's the appropriate way to get started? The first thing is to take a look at what this business looks like without you. How can this business operate without me? If if you are all the four pillars of that business, and there's no way that that business can stand on yourself without you being there, then you don't have anything other than just an income generator, uh, which again might be fine for some people. But if you want something more than that, if you want something that can help you accumulate generational wealth, if you want something that you can eventually sell or transfer or retire, you've got to stop being all four pillars of a business. You've got to find ways to transfer the things. And maybe part of it is outsourcing some of what you're doing and eventually slowly getting processes built up in the business to where you've got something that can stand without you. Right, something you could sell to someone else. They could step in and start generating income on day one. Absolutely, and it doesn't involve people. I think that's an important thing. People always say, well, I can't, I, I can never step away from the business unless I hire a bunch of people. That that, that will guarantee that you never step away from the business if you're being a, a, a project manager or, or someone's managing folks. You've got to, it takes more than that. It Really, it's, it's about documentation of processes because anything that is documented is repeatable. You can train someone to do that, but if I'm training someone to be, you know, Susie, my favorite hair cutter, and I know she's my favorite hair cutter because she talks to everybody, she knows exactly what people want, and it's her customer service that makes her shine. Well, unless there's a documented process about how to Susie's personality works, how to make no one else Susie. can be Susie, right? Exactly, right? and that's that's what you know, Mary Kay and and several other companies that do that type of work do a very good job with is they have this. A person, you know, what what type of attitude or what type of personality you're supposed to do when you're promoting Mary Kay sure. or when you're you know promoting Otis Bunkenheimer or whatever else you know you're you're promoting, but they they have a personality that they're trying to get across, and it's brandable, right? And it, it's great. And McDonald's really cut the cloth with that. Um, yeah. You know, they have a process for every single thing. And I mean, you go to McDonald's in Des Moines, you're going to get the same uh, essentially service and burger that you're going to get in Charlotte. Absolutely. Um, and, and I or couldn't in Hong agree Kong. more. Right. And that's why they're one of the more successful companies in the world. Um, but that's that's the first key is is going through and starting to document the processes. And when, when most people consider what the assets of their business are, the first thing to go to is, well, I've got cars or I've got computers. The most valuable asset that your business has is the intellectual property in your business. And not just in your names and your branding, but how you do what you do. What is your secret sauce? You know, how, how do I make money? Right. That if it makes you money, obviously it's valuable. And it, it boggles the mind to me how many people will go through their day 
and never document what they do. It's sellable. It's I, all in their head. You you see it yourself. How many stupid things people put online for coaching and other stuff where they're trying to sell secrets. So that, that idiot that's got you know, talks in front of the bookshelves on YouTube and how he made this car. <laughs> he has doesn't have anything that you couldn't get off of a 30-second Google search, but he's packaging it and selling it. Right. And it's the same thing. If, if you've got a business or a business model, for goodness sakes, be documenting that. If nothing else, you can franchise it or you can you know, sell it as an info kit online for $300. But, but if you don't ever package that intellectual property and document it, then you'll never be able to sell it. Yeah, if it stays in your head, then it's basically still dependent on you. So that's that's really the first part is, is getting all the documentation down. Then once you have the documentation down, you can start focusing on the core elements of, of what this succession plan is going to look like. And every major corporation has some type of disaster recovery or business succession plan. You know, when Apple... Uh, they're a great example. When Steve Jobs died, the company didn't implode. It suffered a little bit. Your stock price may have uh, boggled. There was, but you know, there was a handoff. There was a succession over time. They knew that he wasn't in the best of health. Tim Cook was going to take over, even if he would have died unexpectedly in a plane crash or something else. Someone would have stepped in to fulfill that role. They were ready for it. They had bylaws in place. They had directors in place. There was a way to make that happen. Well, it's the same thing for for any small business. That you know, what what do you do if something happens to you? Well, maybe for a small business, your business succession plan is just you know, uh, insurance. Say, hey, if I get hurt or if I get disabled, then I've got uh, disability income insurance, or I've got something else that'll help to supplement me if I can't make money anymore. And that's my disaster recovery policy. Right. It can be as simple as life insurance. It can be as simple as having a reserve of twenty five, thirty thousand dollars to where I can bring someone else in to manage it. For my law firm, I've got two backup attorneys that manage other firms that if anything were ever to happen to me, all my client files would transfer over to them and my clients have a record of where those files would go. So. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's something I tell uh, every small business owner I meet that is if you don't if you were to stop working tomorrow, how much money do you have in the bank that could get you through? I mean, some people have a spouse that could supplement and get them through. But if you don't have that padding, you need disability insurance because without it, you're going in the ground. And you're going to you, lose your house. And you got to make sure you have one that pays out. I mean, a lot of them have 180-day elimination periods where if you're not going to get any money for six months, well, hey, that policy is only good if you can make it six months without having any income come in. Right. So, And then the other situation with a lot of disability insurance is that it's it's tough for entrepreneurs because most of them don't allow what they call stated income. In other words, how much money do you make? Now, I know a lot of folks on the books that are contractors uh, or plumbers or heating and air people that make forty fifty thousand a year that are bringing in five hundred a year. You know, but right. if they go to get disability insurance, the most they're going to be able to take is what they pay themselves. And if you're paying yourselves an alternate method, sometimes it's easier to get a key man insurance policy on the business itself and on you as being the key man of that business and getting a business policy. So that's where, you know, having a good financial advisor or insurance agent can, can really help you out for a business succession plan. And the smaller the business is, the the more important the financial component is because you just don't have the money to screw up. Right. If One wrong mistake co- can run you down. Correct. If you're if you're Apple, you can screw up several hundred times and still be okay. Sure. If you're a small business, you you gotta be able to handle that plan properly. Uh, it's kind of like for estate planning, you know, who's who's the person that needs the best estate plan? Well, it's the person that doesn't have a lot of money. But if you're ultra wealthy and you've got $40 million and you screw up your tax planning and you lost 20, well, heck, you still got 20 left over. Right. You mess up your planning when you got a million dollars. Well, the, the, the error, the, the, the margin of error here is a lot smaller. Um, I would I would say that uh, definitely for, for most 
people starting out of business, the insurance component is, is the most overlooked and the most important at that phase. The second phase of any type of business succession plan is going to be the legal documents that make things operate if it goes beyond what basic insurance needs are going to be. And that's going to be you know, having people that can be appointed. And I'll give a common example that I ran into. Um, had a client two years ago that died in a car accident who uh, was a manager of a business. And during the probate process that started, and it took about three weeks to f- fully get up and running, they could write in checks for the business because no one had been put in at the bank as a secondary. So no one could sign any checks. No one could sign any payroll checks. What do you think happened to the business? Yeah, it freezes. Of, yeah, a lot of disgruntled employees, a lot of customers that were upset, a lot of uh, bills that weren't getting paid from suppliers. And you know, fortunately, the business had enough cash on hand to float it. Which the, that's a, a story for a different day. That's they, not always going to be the case. Yeah, how they, how they had that much cash laying around, but that's 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 another story. <laughs> um, not not everybody does that, so that's that's an important piece is having some backups, having documents that, that allow that to be uh, implemented, and then the third piece is just the operational element, which is going back into documenting your processes, like like going back to the Apple example. If a CEO is displaced, there's bylaws that state this person comes into place, or there's uh, not not even having to be a bylaw. It could just be a corporate process that says this is how we replace this person. If we have a secretary that leaves, this is how you know new admin gets put in play. Um, those, those are all very, very important pieces. And, and regardless of how large a succession plan is for a business, they all basically boil down to either being some financial, legal, or operational component. So how does someone incorporate this type of plan in, into their overall estate plan? Well, that's where the attorney is extremely helpful because the attorney is usually the quarterback of any type of business succession plan. As you're aware, Rob, there's a lot of attorneys at Bank of America. <laughs> there's a lot of attorneys at Coke. I think they're all vice presidents. Yeah, a lot of them are. So wh- why do those large corporations have such large inside counsels? It's not responding to lawsuits because they don't handle any of that. They, they throw all that to outside counsel that manages all of their lawsuits. Why do they have such large in-house counsel? Well, it's for two primary reasons. One is to review what they're actually doing for compliance purposes, making sure they're actually following the procedures and policies that the business has itself and policing that. Um, They're responsible for a lot of the internal review that goes on, especially for large publicly audited corporations. The second reason that they're there is to help work out these very types of questions. What should we do when this occurs? Inside counsel is who reviews the processes. So if you're coming through and trying to start a business succession plan, working with an attorney is very helpful because that's basically your inside counsel. That's someone that can say, hey, you know, based on what you're doing here, maybe this is the way that you could structure this process to get yourself out of it. So you're not one of the pillars of the business anymore. Someone else can take over that role. Or maybe this is a way you could protect yourself from having a a manager come in place and take all the money out of your accounts. Maybe you have check writing authority that says, you know, no check can be written for the business over $2,000 without two signatures on the check. Just things that a normal person wouldn't think of, but an attorney would because they've seen it happen so many times. Sure. Uh, that's that's the value of inside counsel, and that's where a business owner can really benefit from it. So in your experience, what are some common challenges people run into when they want to start this process? The biggest challenge by far is the family dynamic. Because for people that aren't related, they can whip one of these things together in a heartbeat. For people that are related, it we start touching on a lot of things now that aren't purely business-related matters. Uh, you know what what people have quote unquote earned, what people quote unquote deserve. You know what's quote unquote fair between brothers and siblings and, and all those types of elements. So if you have a family business, uh, it's it's kind of similar to a, a, a pastor of a church. 
Just because you're the pastor of a church doesn't mean your son should be the pastor of a church. <laughs> it's not an inherited thing. And you know, it's the same for uh, same for a business. Just because you're the owner of a business doesn't mean your son is the ideal person to take over that business when you're gone. In fact, you know, he might not want to do it at all. It sure. might just be there because he, he feels like he has to. So dealing through the family dynamics is incredibly important. It's it's probably the reason why most of the clients that I work with on a business succession plan don't finish the business succession plan is that they've got some family dynamic that's preventing them from doing it or it's just more than they want to handle or more than they can work through so they throw up their hand and quit. Right. And what we find is that when businesses are thrown to the state, let's say that there's a probate process that that business is now going to have to go through, the business will dissolve. There's there's no other way around it. As you're aware, in North Carolina, a, a very minor interest in a business, an ownership interest in a business, can force the dissolution of a business. And if someone doesn't get put in as vice president when they want to be put in as vice president, you have an impasse because there's no majority stake that can overrule, that business is going to dissolve. So if you know that the business is going to dissolve anyway, at least put something in to regulate how you'd want this to travel or at least to have some you know, function in there to say, I'm going to put one kid in charge or, or something else in charge, even if it's maybe not the most politically sound decision in the family. Uh, you got to keep the business open. And if you leave it as a free-for-all at the end, uh, the family dynamics are just going to tear everything apart. And that's similar to what I tell people just in their, uh, you know, in their personal estate plan is the better we plan today, the the better the outcome is going to be tomorrow because we're, you know, I ask them the kinds of questions that head off problems in the future. That way when emotions are running high later and, you know, people are getting a little upset, there's a plan in place. They've already made the decisions and that's just the way it's going to be. And it cuts down a lot of controversy. I, I interned for a guy in law school that used to say that an uncomfortable decision today will prevent an uncomfortable confrontation in the future. <laughs> I like that. All right, that brings us to the part of the show we call the Future Self Skinny Minute. And that's going to be a series of rapid-fire questions to help us get the skinny on you. Ready? We're going to do this in a minute this time, I promise. It's not going to get done in a minute. <laughs> it, it never does. Do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? I think waking up early is by far the most important because as you were talking earlier with the notifications, no one's calling you at four or five in the morning. Yeah. And and I agree. That's been a big uh, change in my life as well. What is your favorite app or resource that you cannot live without? Mm, Pokemon Go over the last couple of weeks. Uh, (laughs) That thing is is so fun. Productivity. Oh, productivity. Okay. Um, It's probably Google, as as lame as that sounds. I'd say. It it has been a huge boost to my productivity since I started using it in 99. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, honestly, I think I just take that one for granted. And if you took it away from me, I think I would be like, yeah, yeah, Google, never mind. Yeah. Um, So fair enough. That's a very good answer. If you could recommend one book to the listeners, what is it and why? Norman Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking. Why? Because if you haven't read that book, uh, it, it just gives such a wonderful... I worldview into how you can think. And we'll put that in the show notes and link it in the post as well. What is your favorite quote? Make sure you're right, then go ahead. <laughs> right on. Who said that? That was uh, attributed to Davy Crockett. Lord knows if he actually said it or not. There's a lot <laughs> of things that are attributed to Davy Crockett that he may have not done. Right. Outside appearing on this podcast, what is your greatest personal achievement? Oh, meeting Martina Hingis, of course. Boom. <laughs> So that was a that was a life uh, lifelong dream. When uh, of course, like any idiot teen, uh, you know, see Martina Hingis playing tennis on TV and think, well, the, of course, the only way that I can ever meet her and 
make her fall madly in love with me is to be a professional tennis player. <laughs> so that, that started me playing in the juniors and eventually working up to a to national ranking and in order to meet her. And they, the one opportunity I got to play in a tournament that she was actually in, I, I ended up tearing my rotator cuff and wasn't able to play. So I uh, ended up winning a chase card promotion about uh, three years ago to play against her in New York and got to meet her. And did you beat her? I, I did. <laughs> I, even, I even got a, a, a peck on the cheek from her. Did you beat her in tennis, though? I did not beat her. No. no <laughs> she is wickedly fast. Much, much faster than she looks on TV. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice you have ever gotten? Mm. My grandfather has this wonderful saying that uh, you buy something for what it is, not what it could be. And... Sorry, I got that backwards. <laughs> oh, no, I actually got it right. Can we, can we reclip that one? Of course. Lead, lead back in. What is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? My grandfather has this saying that uh, you buy something for what it could be, not for what it is. But you pay for what it is, not what it could be. Sure. That's good. What did nine-year-old Nathan Workman think he'd be doing today? Probably in prison. <laughs> uh, very, very hyperactive child. Uh, actually, I wanted to be a fireman. Fireman. That's that's uh, that was my dream growing the old up. Old standby. I had a fire truck. I had the outfit. I had the hat. I had the the hydrant that we used to put out in the yard. And oh, right on. Yeah, I, I think I ended up asking my parents for a Dalmatian one time, and they they declined. Yeah, probably but, good call. Uh, yeah, good call. But no, I I, I really really wanted to be a fireman at so one point. How old were you uh, when you let that dream go? Probably nine. <laughs> that <laughs> no, was the cutoff. We, actually, we had a house fire when I was 11. And as terrified as I was through that whole experience, I think it gave me a, a tremendous respect yeah. for what those folks actually do. I run out of burning buildings. Yeah, it's it's terrifying to be in one and to see the people with the courage to go in. They're, yeah. they're special people. Absolutely. What is one thing you know for sure? I know for sure that my family is always going to be there for me. I'm blessed with a tremendous family. All right, Nathan, it's been a pleasure having you, man. Uh, tell us where we can find you. You can find me at radiuslaw.com or on my extremely defunct blog, nathanworkman.com, which I promised you I would update, and I am going to update it this summer. So. He's going to update it. All right, Nathan, thanks again for stopping by. It's a pleasure. Anytime, Rob. All right. You've been listening to the Future Self Estate Planning Podcast. If you're serious about planning for the future, then we have exactly what you need. Check out our website at www.ingleslawfirm.com for more actionable estate planning content and grab your free copy of our ebook, Six Things You Need to Know Before Making a Will or Living Trust. Thanks for listening. Now, get out there and give your future self something to cheer about. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest at Ingalls Law.